One of the blessings among the many of our summer series is it gives us an opportunity to make friends, invite in some of God's choice servants that the Lord is using to make an impact for the gospel all over the world. Our speaker today, Dr. Paul Nyquist, is having here for the first time, we have the opportunity to hear former senior pastor, author, professor, and since 2009, the president of Moody Bible Institute, share the Word of God. It's been a thrill to sit up here and talk with him, visit with him, get to know him, hear how the Lord's been using him. Find out not only did he graduate from Dallas Seminary like our pastor and so many of us who serve on the staff here, his Master's of Theology, but then his Doctor of Systematic Theology. Before that, I found out that he had actually graduated from the University of Nebraska as an architect. And so the Lord just takes all kinds of backgrounds and uses them for his glory. He's here today with his wife, Cheryl. Cheryl is seated over there. I'm going to ask Cheryl if she'll stand for a moment, remain standing. And then Dr. Paul's going to come. This is Paul Nyquist. Let's give them a great colonial welcome, shall we? Good morning. It is a high privilege to be with you here at Colonial Baptist Church. I have heard so much about this church and your wonderful pastor, Dr. Stephen Davey. And what a privilege now to come and experience this for myself. So thank you for the opportunity to be with you here as part of your summer series. As was mentioned, I serve at the Moody Bible Institute in Chicago. If you're not too familiar with Moody in this part of the country, we are perhaps best known for our Bible college with around 2,500 students on two different campuses. Uh, But we're more than a college. We also have two seminaries, uh, one in Chicago and one in Detroit. And we have uh, several hundred students in an online program as well. But beyond the education, what makes Moody kind of unique is we have two very large media divisions as well, Uh, Moody Radio which operates 36 radio stations from coast to coast and is on 1,700 different affiliates across the country that take our signal. In fact, one of your upcoming speakers in your summer series, David Gibbs III, is just started a new program with us called Law Talk Live, and so I'm glad to see he's going to be with you. But then there's Moody Publishing, the name you can trust, and we publish over 3.5 million books every single year. So all of this is this crazy animal called Moody. But what we're all really about is the Bible. We're seeking to equip people with the truth of God's Word in everything that we do, whether that's education or publishing or radio. And that's what you're about as well. That's what this church is about. It's about the Bible. And so I'm so glad to be opening the Word of God with you this morning. When I arrived at Moody in 2009, my two younger sons were students there. Carson was going into his senior year. Sawyer was going into his junior year. Can you imagine what it was like to suddenly have your dad show up as the new president? (laughs) But it ended up being a fun time with them, and uh, so glad we could intersect at that point in their life as well. Open your Bibles, if you would, to Acts chapter 3. Acts chapter 3. People today are forever confusing their needs and their wants. 
And this confusion can start at a very young age. For instance, a little boy can come up to his mommy in a toy store and say, I need that new toy dump truck. Translation, I want that toy. It can continue as a teenager when he announces to his parents, I need those $150 pair Air Jordan basketball shoes. What he's saying is, I want those shoes. It can even continue into your adult years where a man announces to his wife, I need a new car. Something with pizzazz, something with zip, something that will turn people's heads when I come to a stoplight. What he's saying is, I want a car. In each case, what somebody declared is they had a need, but in each case, what they really had was a want. Now, because today people are forever confusing their needs and their wants, they tend to go after all the wrong things. And so consequently, they may not be that interested in what we as Christians have to offer them in the gospel. They may not be that interested in that. For instance... The chance to spend eternity with Christ in heaven may not be that exciting if you don't realize you're lost. The opportunity to have your sins forgiven may not be that attractive to you if you don't realize you have a void in your life. And so consequently, like sellers of ice cubes to Eskimos, we can find that there's very little demand for our product. Not because there isn't a need, but because the people don't recognize their need. And so like as one man said, when people don't want to come, nothing will stop them. (laughs) Now because that's true, how should we respond when there is very little attraction for what we have to offer them in the gospel? That is, when we live in a society where people are much more in touch with their wants rather than their needs, how should we respond when what we have to offer them meets their needs but not their wants? Well, one option would be to just ignore their need. You know, they don't recognize their need, so I don't recognize their need. You maybe call that the cynic's approach. Or another option would be just to forget that they're needy. You know, they don't act needy. They don't look needy, so we tend to forget that they are needy. But neither of those match up with what God has given to us in the Great Commission. So how should we respond when people have little interest in what we have to offer them in the gospel? Well, we're going to get some helpful instruction in this area In our story today in Acts chapter 3, people have been confusing their needs and their wants since biblical times. And we're going to see that in this story. In this passage, Peter and John intersect with a man who was in extreme need. He's a lame beggar. He looks to Peter and John for one kind of help. They respond by giving him a different kind of help. That is, he looks to them to meet his wants. They look to give him what he really needs. And we're going to see today that's our responsibility. That our responsibility is to give people what we have. Not 
physically, not emotionally, but spiritually. And it may not be what people want, but it is what they truly need. So if you have your Bibles open, let's look at this passage together. Acts chapter 3, and our story is found in the first 10 verses of that chapter. Acts chapter 3. Now, I know you know the context here very well for this story. In Acts chapter 2, the church is born on the day of Pentecost. The Holy Spirit comes down, 3,000 people are saved, and a new spiritual body is born. In verse 42 of chapter 2, it explains that this early church repeatedly devoted themselves to the teaching of the apostles, to the breaking of bread, to fellowship, and to prayer. And there was such a spiritual dynamic present in that early church that we see at the end of chapter 2 that it says the Lord was adding to their numbers daily. Well, now as we come into chapter 3, we get an example of some of the powerful things that God was doing in that early church. And we get introduced to the main characters of this story in the first two verses. So let's read what it says. Now, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the ninth hour, the hour of prayer. And a certain man who had been lame from his mother's womb was being carried along whom they used to set down every day at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, in order to beg alms of those who were entering the temple. So here we're introduced to the main characters. On the one hand, you have Peter and John, longtime disciples, former friends and partners in a fishing business in Galilee, now newly minted apostles of Jesus Christ, and leaders in the church in Jerusalem. Luke, the author of this book, says that they were going up to the temple to pray. Now, there are three main times in which the Jews were called to the temple to pray. The first was at sunrise in connection with the morning sacrifice. The second was at Nine o'clock, uh, ninth hour of the day, the third hour, uh, the three o'clock in the afternoon, which is in connection with the evening sacrifice, and the third time they were called to pray at the temple was at sunset. Well, we see here that Luke says that Peter and John are going up to the temple to pray at the second of these three times, which would have been at three o'clock in the afternoon. And because Luke uses an imperfect verb tense when he describes this, this means that this was their habit. That customarily they did this, that they habitually went to the temple to pray. Which also indicates, friends, that the early Christians did not immediately divorce themselves of all their Jewish rituals. Now that eventually happened, but it happened over the course of time, and primarily because those Christians were kicked out of the temple. So Peter and John are going up to pray at the temple, and as they do, they intersect with another man who also habitually placed himself at the temple at this time, but for a completely different reason. Luke says that he was a lame man. And being a physician, Luke is very careful to say here that this man had never been able to walk one day in his life because he says he was lame from his mother's womb. So this man had never been able to walk. 
And if you look into chapter 4, you see this man was a little over 40 years of age. And so consequently, he's just plying the only trade that he knows, which is begging. Now, if you were to scan through the pages of the New Testament, you would find there were three favorite spots for beggars to beg, three lucrative locations. The first favorite spot was at the homes of rich people. And you see an example of that in the story of the rich man and Lazarus in Luke chapter 16. A second favorite spot was along the main highways and byways. And that's where you find blind Bartimaeus in Mark chapter 12. But by far, the favorite place to beg was at the temple. And that was a favorite place to beg because the Jews generally thought that almsgiving was meritorious in the eyes of God. You see, the rabbis taught there were three main pillars of the Jewish faith. First, there was the Torah. Secondly, worship. And then finally, acts of charity and kindness. And one of the easiest ways to display these acts of charity and kindness was the giving of alms to the poor. Well, this beggar knew that. And so consequently, he strategically positioned himself at the gates of the temple at a time when most of the people would be going in and out of that temple. Now, Luke says the gate he was at was called Beautiful. Josephus, the ancient Jewish historian, says that this gate was also called the Nicanor Gate. And that this gate was on the eastern side, going from the outer court into the first of the inner courts. It was called beautiful because while the other gates were covered with gold or silver, this gate was covered with beautiful Corinthian brass. And so when the sun would come up the east and would shine on that gate, it would just glisten. Josephus says it was 75 feet tall. And it took 20 men to close it at night. And so there in the shadow of this giant, glistening door was this beggar. And as worshipers would walk by, he would bark at them, Alms! 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 Obviously a needy man. Now, you probably did not walk by a blind or lame beggar as you came into the church building today. But we intersect with needy people every single day. People whose marriages are going down the tubes. People whose children are kicking the slats out of their life. People who are spiraling down into debt. People who, who find life is, is so hopeless that they, they bury themselves in a bottle of whiskey or with a bottle of pills. And as we meet with them you know, in, the, in the city or in the neighborhood or in our stores or in our schools, you know, they may not seem needy. They may not act needy. But they are. I live in downtown Chicago. As I walk through the streets of Chicago, you know, I cross people who are dressed up in their designer duds from the stores on the magnificent mile on Michigan Avenue, and they're getting out of their Ferraris and their Bentleys. And they don't look needy. And they don't act needy. 
but they are. A few years ago on a Valentine's Day, a young couple was taking a romantic drive through the woods in southern Louisiana, and as they're driving along, they, they, they saw something white in the trees. So they stopped to investigate it, and they found there a dead teenager who had hung himself by one of the trees with a bed sheet. At the bottom, uh, there was this note written just to mom and dad. It said, I never did develop into a real person, and I cannot tolerate the false and empty existence I have created. What frustrated me most in the last year was that I built no ties to family or friends. There was nothing of lasting worth or value. I led a detached existence. I am a bomb of frustration and should never marry or have children. It is safest to defuse this bomb harmlessly now. Simply cremate me as John Doe. Needy people. And we intersect with them every day. Now what we need to do is give people what they need, not just what they want. And before I said, people are for all, always confusing their needs and their wants. And that happens here in this story. This beggar asks for what he wants, which is money. Look at what it says in verse 3. And when he saw Peter and John about to go into the temple, he began asking to receive alms. So he obviously saw them as potential donors. So as Peter and John pass by him, he begins to ask them for alms. But Peter has something very different in mind here. Look at verse 4. And Peter, along with John, fixed his gaze upon him and said, Look at us. And he began to give them his attention, expecting to receive something from them. And it's obvious what he was expecting. He was expecting... They receive a sizable contribution here because this was a break in the norm. Typically, people would just walk by a beggar like this, flip him a coin without even making eye contact with him. But here, Peter and John stop. They look down at him and they say to him, look at us. And the beggar looks up thinking he has just hit the jackpot. But his dreams were all burst when Peter goes on to say in verse 6, I do not possess silver or gold, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, walk. Now when Peter says, I do not have any money, he's probably telling the truth. Because if you look back into chapter 2 and verse 44, you see that the early church kept all their resources in common. It says there in verse 44, chapter 2, that all those who had believed were together and they had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. So they kept everything in a common pot and used that to meet the needs of people. And that was just a carryover from what the disciples used to do. Remember, the disciples had one money pouch. And who ran that money pouch? Judas Iscariot. So Peter's probably telling the truth here when he says, I don't have any money. 
But he says, what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, walk. Now, to do something in the name of someone else is to invoke their authority. But if you're going to do that, you need to make sure that that name carries the proper authority. Like I said, I live in downtown Chicago. I live on LaSalle Drive. Just a mile down LaSalle is City Hall in Chicago where our mayor resides, which is now Mayor Rahm Emanuel. Now, everything you heard about Chicago politics is true. (laughs) I have never seen a place with such political machinery. I feel like the Queen of Sheba at times when people ask me about this, they say, oh, the half has not been taught. So if you're going to get anything done in Chicago, you have to know people. But let's say knowing that, that I were to march down LaSalle Drive and I were to march into the city hall and march into the city planner's office and say, in the name of Paul Nyquist, I demand that you build a golf course across the street from the Moody Bible Institute so that our students and staff can occasionally enjoy a round of golf. Now, if I were to do that, they'd probably look at me and say, and who are you? And they'd call those little guys in the white coats to come and take me away. But if I were to walk into that office and say, in the name of Mayor Rahm Emanuel, I demand that you do this, I might get a slightly different reaction. Because, you see, his name has authority in City Hall. Mine doesn't. Well, remember, before Jesus was ascended, in Matthew chapter 28, he told his disciples, all authority has been given to me on heaven and earth. How much authority? All authority. That means there's nothing in this universe that has not been placed under the authority of Jesus Christ. And therefore, Peter's just doing what he'd been trained to do, and that is he's ministering in the name that is above every other name. And when he does that, a miracle occurs. It says in verse 7, And seizing him by the right hand, he raised him up, and immediately his feet and his ankles were strengthened. Peter reaches down to this beggar. He raises him up, and as he does, his feet and his ankles become strong. Now, when a biblical miracle occurs, three things are always true. First, biblical miracles are always instantaneous. They're always instantaneous. Notice it says here in verse 7 that immediately his feet and his ankles were strengthened. That is, this man did not get well over a course of time like he would if he was under the care of a doctor. No, it happened instantaneously. Secondly, when biblical miracles occur, they're complete Not just instantaneous, they're also complete. If you look in verse 8, it says, And with a leap, he stood up and began to walk. That is, it doesn't say he went off with a limp. He didn't have to use a cane. He didn't use Peter and John to help him along. No, it was complete. He began to walk. And then third, when biblical miracles occur, 
They're irrespective of faith. You notice, there's nothing in this text that indicates that this beggar was a believer. In fact, if you follow the story through, you almost come to the conclusion he was maybe not. But that doesn't matter, because when the sovereign God of the universe wants to touch somebody and perform a miracle, he can do that irrespective of faith. Now you could ask the question, well, well, can we do this today? And if you're asking by that question, does God still miraculously heal people today? The answer is yes. God has not limited his power. But if you're asking through that question, can we go around invoking the name of Jesus and demand that people be healed? The answer is no. Because only the apostles could do that. And that had a function in the establishment of the church. You see, some people give the impression that miracles were happening all over the early church. Not true. Very few people in the early church performed miracles. I mean, you never have a record that Luke performed a miracle, or Timothy, or Silas, or Apollos. And they were all stalwarts in the early church. Only the apostles performed miracles. And this was done to authenticate their message, that their message had indeed come from God. And once that message was authenticated, once that message was inscripturated, those miracles ceased to happen. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't have anything to offer to people today. We do. It's called the gospel. And it can change people's lives every bit as much as this man's life was changed. But just like Peter here, we need to stop and give them what we have. That means we need to keep the main thing, the main thing in all of our ministries. Now, I don't have a problem with Food banks where you give food to people. I don't have a problem with clothes closets where you give out clothes to people. I don't have a problem with giving people physical help. We do the same thing at Moody through our students throughout all of Chicago. That's called compassion, and that's biblical. But in the midst of all that physical help, you have to keep the main thing, the main thing. You have to continue to realize that their most urgent need, their most serious need, is for salvation in Jesus Christ. And so you, all, you, you have to give them what they truly need, not just what they want. Now when God meets a powerful need like he does here, several things always happen. You always have several things result. And that's what you find in the final part of this passage. Look what it says in verse 8. And with a leap, he stood upright and began to walk. And he entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God. And they were taking note of him as being the one who used to sit at the beautiful gate of the temple to beg alms, and they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. I don't think it's any accident that Luke repeatedly says here, this man was walking three times in just two verses. He emphasizes that. In verse 8, he says he, began, he, he stood upright and began to walk. At the end of verse 8, they saw him walking and leaping and praising God. In verse 9, it says all the people saw him walking. 
And again, that Luke as a physician here is trying to show this man who had never walked one day in his life is now walking, which means that God not only strengthened his ankles and his feet, but he also gave him coordination and balance so that he could suddenly walk. Now when God meets a powerful need like this, certain things always result. First, when God meets a need like this, there's always joy. There's always joy. Notice it says in verse 8, And with a leap, he stood upright. And he was walking and leaping and praising God. This man was leaping. Let me ask you, what kind of people leap? Happy people leap. Joyous people leap. Sour pusses don't leap. This man is happy, so he's leaping. So when God powerfully meets a need, there's always joy. Secondly, when God powerfully meets a need, there's always praise. It says at the end of verse 8, they saw him walking and leaping and praising God. In verse 9, all the people saw him walking and praising God. See, because this man was now healed, he was now able to do something that he is never able to do before in his life. And that is, it says, he went with Peter and John into the temple. You see, according to Leviticus chapter 21, anybody with a physical deformity, such as lameness or blindness or any other kind of physical defect, was not allowed to come into the temple. So that meant for 40 years... This man had to stay outside the gate. He was never allowed in the temple. But now that he had been made whole for the very first time in his life, he can go into the temple and worship. Can you imagine how that must have felt? No wonder he's praising God. And then third, when God powerfully meets the needs, there's not only joy, there's not only praise, there's always amazement. Look at the end of verse 10. It says, They took note of him, and the one who used to sit and beg alms, and they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. See, they couldn't deny this was him. They knew this, this is the same one who used to sit at the gate. So there's no question about that. The question was, how could this happen? Because people who have been lame for 40 years just don't suddenly start walking. So it says they were filled with wonder and amazement. The word wonder means they were filled with awe. And they had to recognize something truly wonderful had happened here. And they were filled with amazement. That means that their, their mental categories of how they used to about think about things was now being challenged. And so they were, they were stunned. They were Amazed. Let me ask you. What would have happened that day if Peter and John had not stopped at that beggar as they're going into the temple? What would have happened if they had just hustled on by him like everybody else on their way to prayer meeting? What would have happened? Well, There would have been a lot less commotion in the temple on that day. I guarantee you that. 
But this man's basic need would have been unmet. He still would have been lame. He still would have been a beggar. He still would have been hawking loose change. But the fact is, Peter and John did stop. And they didn't give him what he wanted. They gave him what he truly needed. And that is our responsibility, friends, as believers in Jesus Christ. We need to stop walking by a needy world. And we need to stop and give them what we have. Now, they may not seem needy. They may not look needy. It might be the custodian at your school. It might be the administrative assistant at work. It might be the neighbor across the street. It might be Uncle Joe and Aunt Betty. It might be the teenager that hangs out at your house all the time. And they may not seem needy. But they are. And we intersect with them every single day. And we need to stop walking by a needy world. And stop and give them what we have. We need to stop and give them the gospel. And if we do that, we may not just see a life changed. We can see a whole world changed. In 1855, Edward Kimball, a Sunday school teacher, stopped at a shoe store in Boston. Back in the storeroom, the stockroom of that shoe store was an 18-year-old young man who had started coming to Edward Kimball's Sunday school class. But Edward Kimball did not pass by that shoe store. He stopped. And he went in, and he went to that storeroom, and there he confronted that young man about his need for Christ. And back in that storeroom in 1855... Dwight Lyman Moody put his trust in Jesus Christ. Now that's not the end of the story, far from it. Dwight L. Moody went on to become the greatest evangelist in the last part of the 19th century, winning millions to Christ on both sides of the Atlantic Ocean. At one of his evangelistic meetings in Chicago, a man named Wilbur Chapman came to faith in Christ. Well, Wilbur Chapman also went on to become an evangelist, ministering primarily in the Chicago area. And in one of his evangelistic meetings at the Pacific Garden Mission, a professional baseball player from the Chicago White Stockings named Billy Sunday came to faith in Christ. Well, Billy Sunday eventually gave up baseball, and he also went on to become an evangelist, having crusades all over the country. And in one of his evangelistic crusades, a man named Mordecai Ham came to faith in Jesus Christ. Well, Mordecai Ham also went on to become an evangelist, ministering primarily in the southeastern part of the United States. And at one of his evangelistic meetings, a tall, thin North Carolina boy came forward to trust in Christ, and his name was Billy Graham. And you know the rest of that story. Now, what would have happened if Edward Kimball had just walked by that shoe store on that day? We don't know. But we do know what happened because he stopped. 
Friends, stop walking by a needy world. Stop walking by a needy world. Stop and give them what you have. Stop and give them the gospel. Let's pray together. Father, every day of our lives, we meet, intersect, bump shoulders with needy people. There's over five billion of them on this planet. And we meet them in our neighborhoods, in our schools, in our places of work. We intersect with them every day. Father, thank you that we have what they truly need. We may not be able to meet their wants, but we can help them with what they truly need, which is salvation in Jesus Christ. But we need to stop. We need to stop just buzzing by them, forgetting about their need. We need to stop and give them what we have. And we trust as we do that, Father, that you will change not only their lives, but you'll use that to start a chain that changes this whole world. Father, we entrust those results to you as we are faithful in this area. And we bring this in the name of Christ our Savior.